So there are many, many different ways of understanding how it is possible that we are saved. One of the most traditional ways that we understand it, something I think a lot of us have absorbed and would be able to explain, is from Paul's letter to the Romans, from the 10th chapter. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this also might remind you of the poem that has the line in it, that betwixt the saddle and the ground, mercy was sought and mercy found. Now this idea, Matt and I were just talking about this last night. He went to Catholic school for, I think, 23 years. He would explain that that what this poem means is that even in the very last moment of your life, imagine you are a soldier on a battlefield, even if you have led a deplorable life and you are killed Falling off your horse between the saddle and the ground, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And that is one of many ways that we can think about what it means to be saved. And the thing is that there are so many others. Frank, thank you for reminding us that during the Reformation, we tried to bring so many things back that had come from the earliest church. And one of those things you might be surprised to know is that this beneath the cross of Jesus, him, and the next scripture that I'm going to read has us dwelling, abiding, living our lives as though we are in the wilderness, just like in Lent. We live in this place at the foot of the cross. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, Christians have taken up camp and decided to stay here at the foot of the cross. So we're wrestling with this during Lent because you might be surprised to know this didn't become the church's central image for about 1,000 years. If you walked into any ancient church space, you would not find a cross as the central motif. Definitely not a crucifix. There were no depictions of Jesus on a cross in the early church. There were none. You will have to search a long time to find it. And then the first images you will find of Jesus with a cross behind him is Jesus very much not on the cross, but victorious with his arms raised up, already resurrected. You might find instead an image of the baptism. You might find an image of the tree of life full of all of the birds and many blessings of creation, you would find so many images, but not this one. But now I'm going to read 
our gospel reading from the Gospel of Luke, which dwells in this place, in the wilderness, and remembers that as we enter our Lenten journey for 40 days, 40 nights, excluding Sundays, Sunday is always a feast day, we are remembering this story from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. May God add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the understanding of God's holy word. So, I've bitten off a lot more than I can chew here. Two hymn texts, two scripture passages, all of church history, atonement theology, it's a lot to work on. And not only did I bite off more than I can chew, I am about to break the first two rules that I was taught as a preaching student. Number one, don't make yourself either the hero or the victim of your story. And number two, do not compare yourself to Jesus. But here I go. And to begin with, I want to tell you all, especially in case my parents, whom I love very much, are joining us over the live stream, because sometimes they do, I had an idyllic childhood. I have loving, hardworking parents. They have the six of us children, a boy and then five girls. I'm right in the middle of that pack of girls. We love each other so much, I couldn't have wished for a better childhood. You know how it says in Cheaper by the Dozen? Well, we were a half dozen, but my father raised only 12 children, and my mother raised 12 only children. My mother raised six only children and loves us and dotes on us. So I'll just put your hearts at rest before I tell the story. It cannot have been easy to raise six kids. And she made it look easy, but I know now that it must have been very challenging. And one day, she took just my younger sister, Hillary, and myself. We're the two who are close in age. Everyone else is pretty much spread out with maybe a four-year age gap between. But I was only one when Hillary was born. 
And we would wear matching dresses, matching bows in our hair, and run around town lying to people that we were twins, having absolutely the best time. And Hillary had what you might call a naughty streak. She was often getting into trouble. And so we'd been very naughty at the grocery... Well, Hillary had been naughty at the grocery store. And on the way home, she was very hungry. And my mother kept saying, don't touch the groceries. Don't touch the groceries. We were in an Oldsmobile station wagon with a deep back seat. Hillary did indeed touch the groceries. She jumped into the back seat, pulled out a bag of grapes. It was upside down. It went all over the car. My mother, as she warned she would do, veered the car over to the side, hit the brakes, hops out in the center of town, grabs a little girl and spanks her hard right there in the center of town, a little public humiliation. I looked up and said, but I'm Vanessa. (laughs) Hillary, savvy as she is, had jumped over me and shoved me into her seat so that as my mother opened the door, it was me she grabbed out, the innocent one. I hadn't done anything wrong. Now, trust me, I got a lot of mileage out of this story throughout my growing up. But I'm Vanessa, if I had missed curfew when I was a teenager. But I'm Vanessa, and my mother would remember that time she spanked me instead of Hillary. I'm still getting mileage out of it. Now, I don't know if it's true. I think it is that that was the last time my mother spanked any of us. You're welcome to all of my siblings. By spanking an innocent child, I think, I wish that it were true in our country that we would see if we had put one innocent person to death, that would, the horror and the shame of that would end all executions. And I wish we could look at the cross, and I wish we, as humanity, could have realized that an innocent God had hung on the cross for us and collectively decided never to harm anyone bodily in that way again. I wish that the legacy of Christianity would be that we had become peace-loving, that we had turned away from violence forever. Sadly, that's not the case. And the cross and the imagery of the cross how that started to take precedence in Christianity coincides with times like the Crusades, times when Christians would emblazon the cross on shields and go out into the world to kill people who did not look or think like they did. The legacy of Christianity and the cross is deeply tied to our wrongs in the world. I wish I could say that it was not that way. But the cross brings up this question, and I will raise a lot of questions, and Heidi will clear them all up for you next week, right? And David the week after. So if this doesn't all hang together, this is why it is a sermon series all through Lent. But this is the question. If God is good, and we believe God is good, if God is a loving parent, and we believe this to be true, how could God let God's innocent, beloved child hang on a cross, be tortured, crucified, and die innocent for our sins? And how is it that when God is omnipotent, all-powerful, God could do anything, that God had it happen in this way so that salvation would come through torture? 
And it was womanist theologians and liberation theologians who have explained that this understanding of suffering and death has been so bad for so many people who have been told to bear their cross, to suffer, to stay enslaved, to stay in abusive relationships, to be harmed, to spend their life not living their life to the fullest because there is something that saves in suffering. And it has done terrible damage to so many people. And the way it, I think, can continue to do damage to us is Jesus explained all of Scripture and how we are supposed to live in a very simple way. Love God, love each other. If this idea of atonement theology is driving a wedge between you and God and making it hard for you to love God, and if it then drives a wedge between you and other people and causes you to judge them and condemn them, to turn away from people in their need, shouldn't we look for more images I think the Bible is full of images of how we can understand this. And if this one isn't working for you, why don't we look for more? Why don't we turn to other images? And in our hymn that we are going to see, O Love, How Vast, How Flowing Free, it offers a very different understanding. Like those early Christians who painted so many scenes from the life of Jesus, but never the cross, It was Jesus in his solidarity with us, coming to us, taking on a human form that saves. It's in his whole life. It's in his teaching us how to live and how to love. It's in being one of us. We will sing toward the end of the service. Oh, love, how vast, how flowing free. Oh, love, how filled with ecstasy that God, a human form, should take and mortal be for mortal's sake. Not as an angel visiting, nor form celestial orbiting, but born in flesh God chose to be, robed in our own humanity. This is true love and solidarity, coming as close to us as God can, being one of us. And it is out of God's abundant love that we are all saved. God loves each one of you, too much to ever let you go. You are beloved. You are cherished. God chooses you out of God's free will and will never let any one of you be lost. Rita Nakashima Brock wrote in the Christian Century, Christians have choices. If what we believe about God is at the expense of the rest of humanity or the earth, it is too small, fearful, and miserly to make much room for love or enable us to build a future together. So let's wrestle with this. Let's reimagine, if we need to, what it means to be saved, what it means to be enfolded in God's eternal love, And let's turn to one another in solidarity, remembering that God took on a human form to understand and to love us better, and we can come to one another in solidarity, seeking to understand one another, seeking to be more present to one another, seeking to build that meaningful future together. Thanks be to God.